0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Please note, the story you're about to hear is not drawn from any single version of the Jorogumo. Accounts of this mythological creature vary across the centuries and different regions of Japan. We've combined several disparate interpretations of the Jorogumo, along with a generally accepted account of the creature's literary and cultural history for the purpose of this episode. Magoroku wrung his hands under the table. The woman in front of him had hardly spoken since introducing herself. They sat outside a sprawling estate, sipping fine tea. He couldn't believe he had followed her here, but she said he must attend to an urgent matter regarding her daughter. Something about her tone had compelled him to obey. He slurped his tea idly, wondering if he should say something. At last, the woman's daughter appeared, a beautiful girl with deep, golden eyes. Immediately, she dropped to her knees and clung to Magoroku's pant leg. She begged Magoroku to marry her. He set down his tea and chuckled. He was already married, but the girl wouldn't listen. She swore she would do anything for him, After all, though he had nearly killed her mother two days earlier, she had still insisted on seeing him. As she spoke, she dug her fingers into Mogoroku's leg. Her grip tightened until he yelped in pain. Mogoroku jumped up and pulled away from the girl, sending the tea table flying, He told the girl he had no idea who she was, but he had never come close to killing anyone. Without waiting for a response, Magoroku made a mad dash for his home. But before he could crest the hill, he fell, and everything went black. When he awoke again, he was on his deck with his wife beside him. Above him dangled a golden Joro spider, clinging to a single silken strand. As Magoroku struggled to regain his wits, he recalled chasing away a Joro spider two days before. Magoroku scrambled away from the creature. With a creeping horror, he wondered if he would ever sleep again. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling their stories, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creation of these beasts. Where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose humanity's greatest fears. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type mythical monsters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a 5-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today we're discussing the Japanese legend of the Jorogumo, a monstrous spider with the ability to transform into a seductive woman. The Jorogumo lures lustful men into their webs and devours them whole. It's not clear when exactly the myth of the jorogumo originated, but it was one of many yokai, or supernatural monsters, that were popular in writings made during the Edo period of Japan. The Edo period took place between 1603 and 1868, while the Tokugawa shogunate ruled Japan. It was a time of relative peace in the country, and innovation in art, writing, and theater was encouraged. It's this openness, combined with new developments in printing technology, that led to an explosion of interest in scintillating and terrifying tales of yokai like the jorogumo. On a bright afternoon, a young warrior named Hideyoshi knelt outside his home, sharpening his katana. Sweat formed on his brow as he carefully moved the blade across the whetstone, filing the edge until it gleamed in the sunlight. As Hideyoshi worked, he drank in the quiet solitude, pleased that his home was miles from town. Here, he was free to train and meditate in peace. At last, Hideyoshi finished with the katana and ran his finger lightly along its edge, just grazing the freshly sharpened steel. A thin cut appeared on his skin, and drops of crimson blood dripped on the ground. He sucked his finger and put the katana down. Hideyoshi leaned back to relax, but he had hardly closed his eyes when he heard the distant rushing of water— It was as if he were lying near a great waterfall, which was impossible. There were no waterfalls nearby. He sat up and squinted, looking through the trees for the source of the noise. He spotted some movement between two cherry blossom trees. Instinctively, he reached for his sword, but relaxed his grip as he saw a young woman emerge from the woods, Her long black hair whipped in the wind, and cherry blossoms swirled around her as if magnetized. Even from far away, Hideyoshi could tell she was beautiful. As the woman approached, the sound of the waterfall grew deafening. The noise pushed all else from Hideyoshi's mind, and he had an overpowering desire to howl like an animal. Every muscle in his body tensed, and he had a sudden, violent urge to plunge his katana into his own chest. But then the woman spoke, and the sound of the waterfall ceased altogether. Before Hideyoshi could react, he found himself mesmerized by her words. She bowed low before Hideyoshi and introduced herself sweetly. Her voice was smooth and thick like honey. As a soft breeze blew by, Hideyoshi smelled a sweet fragrance coming from her. It was the scent of the deep woods, perfect, unsullied by human feet. It intoxicated Hideyoshi. He nearly forgot to introduce himself in return. He hurriedly jumped to his feet and bowed respectfully. As he rose... He took a closer look at the mysterious woman and saw that she was with child. The small bump of her belly could be seen just beneath the delicate folds of her yukata. The woman spoke again, but Hideyoshi couldn't discern her words any longer. He was lost in the complicated pattern emblazoned on the fabric, an incompressible tangle of gold and white, the threads wove in, out, and around each other, giving the overall effect of a spiderweb caught in a gust of wind. But even the beauty of the design could not be compared with her face, as Hideoshi found when at last he wrenched his gaze upward. For a moment, he stood frozen as he watched her pink lips flutter. When she smiled, it was like the sun breaking through the clouds on a rainy day. Her pale skin flushed as she spoke again, and from somewhere deep within his trance, Hideyoshi had a glimmer of comprehension. She was asking if he recalled meeting her. Hideyoshi stuttered to reply, begging the woman's forgiveness. He had never seen her before and felt certain he would have remembered her. At his answer, the woman laughed. It was a cold sound and almost made him shudder. It rang loud and true through the woods and cut through his thoughts. It twisted and prodded at his consciousness, finally settling in the back of his mind like a faraway scream. The woman cradled her belly and spoke softly to her unborn child, She whispered, him there surely is your father. Go forth and be embraced. At her words, Hideyoshi saw her yukata twist around her abdomen. The pattern on the fabric transformed. The threads seemed to untangle themselves and lunge outward. Hideyoshi tried to move, but felt paralyzed, tied to the ground by the golden strings. Involuntarily, he felt himself kneel before the beautiful woman. She cackled at his bow, and her teeth stretched into menacing fangs. Her lips bubbled and burned away, exposing black, diseased gums. Golden venom dripped from her maw onto the grass, sizzling as it hit the ground— Once again, Hideyoshi heard the sound of a waterfall rushing in his ears. He strained against the strings holding him down and felt them dig angrily into his flesh. Soon, slender cuts crisscrossed his arms and hands, cuts just like the one bestowed by his katana. Ignoring the pain, Hideyoshi reached for his sword on the ground and managed to grab the hilt. But as he looked up again, he saw the woman's fangs had disappeared. She looked just as she had before, beautiful and serene. Now she had a look of unfathomable sorrow on her face. A lone tear trailed down her left eye, and she pleaded for Hideyoshi to remember his child. For a moment, he was immobilized again. He wanted to do anything the woman asked, anything to keep her from crying. He tried to force himself to remember. He must know this woman. He must owe her something. Just as he was about to drop the sword... The woman's tear fell to the ground. Hideyoshi watched as the tear caught the sunlight and became golden. As it hit the dirt, the ground bubbled and hissed. Clarity hit Hideyoshi like a bolt of lightning. His mind was his own again. He could now see the woman's silhouette on the grass, and he watched as the shadows of eight hideous limbs erupted from her back. Soon, the limp body of the woman dangled below the black, quivering abdomen and sickening legs of an enormous spider. She was a yokai, a jorogumo. With a mighty heave, Hideyoshi swung his sword, severing the strings tying him down. The beast screamed and reared backward. But it was too slow. With the last of his stamina, Hideyoshi lunged forward and swung again, slicing through the monster's abdomen. Sickening green guts and purple entrails tumbled from the wound as the spider screamed again. The creature fled, scampering madly past Hideyoshi and into his home. He ran after it, but when he threw open the door, it had already disappeared. He heard sounds from the attic, but couldn't quite reach the creature. He listened with dread as it squealed and convulsed on the attic floor. That night, Hideyoshi didn't sleep. He kept vigil outside his home, katana at the ready. He stood firm until dawn, but his foe never emerged from the house. As the sun rose over the tree line, Hideyoshi resolved to finish what he had started. He would vanquish the beast. Hideyoshi crept into his home with both hands on his blade. The place looked deserted. He hadn't heard a sound from inside in hours, and wondered if the creature had somehow escaped. He climbed carefully up to the attic, peeked inside, and dropped his sword. The scene was worse than he could have ever imagined. On the floor in front of him lay the Jorogumo, bloody and stinking, It had shrunk to be just a foot or two long, but with its menacing fangs and eight monstrous legs, it still looked imposing. But the true horror lay beside the spider. A dozen of its victims, their skulls wrapped in thick webbing and their bodies desiccated, were tossed carelessly onto a pile. The faceless corpses made Hideyoshi sick and he retched before cautiously approaching the yokai. He felt a screaming in the back of his mind once more and slammed his blade into the spider's abdomen. At last, the screaming stopped. The monster was slain. Hideyoshi was lucky. He was one of the few to survive an encounter with the terrifying Jorogumo, which has dominated yokai legends for centuries. Like many yokai, the Jorogumo's appearance is based on a real creature. Nephila clavata, or the Joro spider, is an orb weaver spider. Orb weavers are known for their complex and beautiful webs. The females of the species have vivid yellow markings and are one and a half times larger than their male counterparts. While male joro spiders can grow up to 10 millimeters, females can be up to 25 millimeters long. For American listeners, that's less than one inch, but it's the size disparity between the two sexes that matters here. These factors, as well as their uncommon golden silk, likely made the spiders ripe for folktales. It was said that on its 400th birthday, the Joro spider gains the ability to shapeshift into a beautiful woman and becomes a Jorogumo. It's possible that the large female spiders, with their brilliant markings, inspired more than just the yokai's appearance. There are clear parallels between the real-life female Joro spiders and their ostentatious, sexually aggressive mythical counterparts. As the legends about the Jorogumo evolved, they continued to both attract and disturb the Japanese public. Eventually, the power of the monster grew until it was capable of holding entire towns in its thrall. Coming up, we'll explore another terrifying legend about the deadly Jorogumo. Life is a highway. And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now back to the story. During the Edo period in Japan, between the 17th and mid-19th centuries, interest in yokai or supernatural monsters exploded. One of the most popular books in the genre was the illustrated Demon Horde's Night Parade by artist Toriyama Sekien. Published in 1776, the book was a parody of the encyclopedias of the time. It billed itself as a reference book on yokai. The illustrations within became immensely popular, largely because Sekien created his artwork on woodblocks, This enabled him to mass-produce the drawings and sell the book widely. In the years afterward, the book became influential enough that legends around the yokai within shifted permanently to match Sekian's drawings and descriptions. In the book, the jorogumo, or the woman spider, sits on top of a cherry tree controlling a horde of smaller spiderlings with her webs, as if they were horrifying puppets on strings. It's difficult to say when exactly specific myths around the Jorogumo emerged, but it's possible Sekian's drawing influenced one tale about the mistress of Joran Falls, now in the city of Izu. On a warm summer afternoon... The mistress bathed in the pool at the base of the falls. She swept her long hair to the side and combed out the knots above the waves. Under the surface, her wild legs rushed to and fro with the current. As the mistress bathed, she began to sing sweetly. Her song mingled with the sounds of the falls, creating a haunting lullaby that reverberated through the surrounding wood. The cherry blossoms nearby vibrated at the sound of the music. Gradually, the breeze around the falls picked up, and soon the wind had gathered up the blossoms. Just as the mistress reached her crescendo, the wind stopped, releasing the flowers. They drifted downward like a hail of confetti, suffusing the pool with their sweet scent and sticking to the mistress's wet skin but more than the wind had heard the song. Soon, the mistress heard the sound of crunching leaves and turned to see a man emerging from the wood. Upon seeing the woman nude, the man turned away respectfully and apologized. He introduced himself as Mitsukuni and said that he'd heard her song while walking through the forest. He had felt compelled to come and find the mysterious, beautiful singer. The mistress giggled at his compliment and bade him to face her. He found he couldn't resist her request, as much as modesty compelled him to turn the other way. As he looked more closely, Mitsukuni saw he was right to call her beautiful. Her skin shone even under the bubbling water of the falls, and her cheeks were tinted pink like the cherry blossoms. She smiled at his glance and gestured for him to come over. Mitsukuni edged a bit closer, but dared not come too close. There was something about the way the woman stood in the pool, so confident yet so tall, that unnerved him. He lived in the town nearby and knew the depth of the water well. The mistress saw Mitsukuni's reticence and again ushered him closer. When he refused to go into the water with her, her face changed. Her mouth twisted into an evil smile and she stood up in the water to the fullness of her height. It was then that Mitsukuni's nightmares came to life. The woman towered over him, even at such a distance He watched as her legs contorted, cracking horribly as they became four, then six, and then eight. She was a jorogumo, a temptress, and a monster. Mitsukuni pried his eyes from the beast and turned to run toward the trees. He burst into the dense forest, but just when he thought he had lost the jorogumo, he felt his legs pulled out from under him. The monster had wrapped her webs around Mitsukuni's ankles. It dragged Mitsukuni through the trees, back toward the falls. Mitsukuni clung to passing trees and dug his fingers into the dirt, but it was no use. The spider creature yanked him steadily toward the pool, and he was powerless to stop it. But then, as he neared the tree line, Mitsukuni noticed the upturned stump of a fallen cherry blossom tree. He frantically pulled at the sticky webbing around his ankle. At the last moment, he managed to pull the webbing off and throw it onto the stump. Free of the bonds, Mitsukuni scrambled up and raced deeper into the forest. Behind him, he could hear a splash as the stump was dragged into the falls. As he sprinted away, Mitsukuni thought he heard a distant, mischievous voice echoing behind him. Clever. Clever. Like the first story, this tale of the jorugumo was primarily told for entertainment, not necessarily to teach the listener a lesson. Tales of yokai were intended to entertain, scare, and titillate, and were not meant to be fables. Even so, both legends emphasize the importance of caution and cleverness, especially around beautiful women. To that point, some scholars draw parallels between the jorogumo and the poisonous woman, or dokufu. This was a trope that appeared in art throughout the latter years of the Edo period and into the early Meiji period which followed. According to Matthew C. Strecker, a professor of Japanese literature at Sophia University in Tokyo, the dokufu's chief characteristics were their unbridled sexuality, violent tempers, and greed. At the same time, their depiction of the poison woman as sexually promiscuous enhanced the attraction such women held for their male readership in particular, making these stories instant bestsellers once they were converted to book form. In many ways, the Jorogumo represented the aspect of women that both attracted and terrified men most—their sexuality As an evil monster who ensnared her victims by preying on their lust, the Jorogumo provided a way for storytellers to express their fears of powerful women while also reveling in them. But the story of the Mistress of Joran Falls has not quite ended yet. In fact, the true tale only begins after the clever man tricks the Jorogumo and sends the tree stump barreling over the edge of the basin. After Mitsukuni's disappearance, the Mistress of the Falls seethed. She had been fooled by a mortal. The thought sickened her. She thrashed in the water and howled, Her wails were heard for miles, terrifying the nearby town. By the time Mitsukuni made it back, the people were willing to believe anything he told them about the monster responsible for the ghastly shrieks. For weeks after that, the mistress bathed alone. She tried repeatedly to call men to her, but found no victims willing to come anywhere close. The man Mitsukuni had spoiled her hunt. Townsfolk turned tail and ran if they even got close enough to hear the roar of the waterfall. But just as the mistress's patience had reached its limit, she heard the thwack of an axe at the top of her falls. From under the cover of her watery veil, she peered up to see a woodcutter chopping a cherry blossom tree on the cliff above, The mistress smiled a wicked smile. All eight of her legs twitched in anticipation. This was her chance, possibly her last. She mustn't waste it. But as she began her transformation into the beautiful temptress, she saw that she didn't need to sing her song to draw her prey into her web. As she watched, the woodcutter, tired from a long afternoon's work, botched his last swing at the cherry tree. The axe slid from his sweaty hands and flew spinning over the waterfall into the basin below. The woodcutter slumped down against the half felled tree. He was a stranger to the region and knew nothing about the legends of the falls. He needed that axe back. It was his livelihood. Reluctantly, he stood back up and looked over the side of the cliff. In the distance, he spotted a precarious path to the base of the falls. After struggling down the slippery cliff, the woodcutter at last made it down to the pool. As he did, a beautiful woman emerged from the water, carrying his axe The woman drew close to the woodcutter, brushing against him as she handed him back his tool. The woodcutter bowed in thanks and introduced himself as Yukimura. The woman bowed perfunctorily and quickly waved him off. She told him to leave the falls and keep the incident a secret. She said, You must never tell anyone what you saw here. Yukimura left the pool and headed back to town. The mistress smiled as he walked back through the trees. She could tell by the look in his eyes. He was bewitched. Coming up, we'll conclude the tale of Yukimura as he struggles to resist the tantric charms of the Jorogumo. Now, back to the story. Stories of the woman spider, the Jorogumo, have haunted Japanese legends for centuries, since at least the Edo period, beginning in 1603. One of the most enduring stories about this giant, shape-shifting seductress takes place at the Joran Falls of Izu. There, by the waterfall, a small town lived in fear. After one of its own had narrowly avoided being dragged into the falls by the monster, no one dared go near it. But one night a stranger drifted into the town bar. His name was Yukimura, a woodcutter by trade he had spent the afternoon near the falls. The townsfolk gathered around the man. They prodded him for stories. Had he seen anything? They didn't tell him why they were so curious. They didn't need to. Yukimura knew something wasn't right with the woman he'd met by the waterfall. Thoughts of her filled Yukimura with an inexplicable dread, but also an intoxicating desire to see her again. He felt repulsed and yet at the same time drawn to her, and she had asked him to keep her secret – So that night, he kept his lips sealed. No matter how the curious patrons pushed him, he refused to say anything. When he awoke the next morning, Yukimura's first thoughts were of the mistress. He longed to feel the brush of her damp skin, to see the flush of her cheeks and her sinuous curves. He immediately set out back into the woods, toward the basin of the falls. As he approached the clearing, his heart pounded in his ears. For a moment, he nearly turned around, feeling ridiculous, and yet something in him felt drawn to the falls and pushed him past the line of cherry blossoms. There, bathing in the pool, was the mistress. She looked even more lovely than he remembered, She smiled as he approached, and beckoned him closer. He plunged forward as if pulled by invisible strings all the way into the pool. The mistress embraced him and gave him a long kiss. After she had her way with him, the mistress sent the woodcutter away from the falls. He felt drained physically and mentally and staggered through the woods like a wounded animal. It took him hours to make his way back to the town. Like he had the night before, Yukimura stepped into the local bar only to be pestered by questions from the locals. They had seen him going into the woods and feared for his safety. Yukimura sneered at their concerns. He knew what they were truly after. They wanted the mistress for themselves, but she was his and his alone. The next day and the one after that were the same. Each time the mistress sent Yukimura away from the falls, urging him to replenish his strength and return. But leaving his beloved became more and more difficult. On the fourth day... The mistress sent him away, crawling on all fours. She had drained him to the point of total exhaustion, and he got only feet from the waterfall before he collapsed. Finally, her prey was ready. Now he would be hers forever. She released a thread of golden silk and slowly wrapped it around Yukimura's ankle. But little did she know... There was someone else in the clearing that day. The priest of the local Buddhist temple, an Osho, had followed Yukimura into the woods. He had suspected Yukimura had been taken in by the Jorogumo of the falls, and as he watched the golden thread encircle the man's ankle, he knew he had been correct. Just as the mistress was about to pull Yukimura into the water forever, The Osho burst forth from the cherry blossoms and let out a thunderous shout. The mistress, shocked by the noise, released the thread and vanished. The Osho rushed to Yukimura's side and carried him back to town. When Yukimura awoke, he saw the Osho standing over him. The priest explained what had happened. The mistress of the falls was a yokai. She couldn't be trusted. She sought only to bewitch men, drain them of their strength, and devour them. Yukimura knew what the priest said was true, but still, he couldn't banish thoughts of the mistress from his mind. That night, he snuck out of the temple and climbed to the top of the nearby mountain. There... On top of the world, Yukimura yelled at the top of his lungs. He begged for help from the protective spirit of the mountain, the tangu. After hours of desperate screaming and wandering in the cold, Yukimura heard the call of a great bird of prey. An immense creature approached the mountain peak from the air, flapping impossibly large wings. The Tengu landed on the mountain and screamed. Yukimura fought back his urge to flee in terror and stared into the Tengu's keen eyes. The spirit's face and wings were like those of an enormous black kite, but it had the body of a man. It was clothed in fine robes and brandished a simple staff tipped with white. Yukimura bowed and begged the spirit's forgiveness. He told the Tengu he was at the end of his rope. He was in love with the mistress of Joran Falls. Though she was a Jorogumo, his devotion knew no bounds. On his knees, he pleaded with the Tengu to give him its blessing. He hoped to use its strength to marry the mistress. The Tengu shook its staff and laughed coldly in reply. The sound cut deep through Yukimura's tangled thoughts, straight to the core of his madness. The Tengu roared and ordered Yukimura to leave the falls far behind. Then, leaving Yukimura trembling, it flew away, beating its giant wings upward until it disappeared in the light of the rising sun. Yukimura left the mountain weeping. He knew the Osho and the Tengu were right. He knew he had to leave the falls far behind and never return. And yet still he heard the call of the Jorogumo echoing in the darkest corridors of his mind. The mistress stood waiting at the basin of the falls. She could feel Yukimura's lust, his desire to be devoured by her. She heard his heavy breaths on the wind, madly rushing to the clearing. At last, she saw him dashing through the trees. He ran headlong to her, arms outstretched, and she embraced him with all eight of her twisting, golden limbs. The legend of Jorin Falls has much in common with other tales of the Jorogumo. In the city of Sendai, there's supposedly also a story about a Jorogumo attempting to pull men into the nearby waterfall. There's even a legend of a man who escaped her grasp by using a tree stump as a decoy, just like in the myth about Jorin Falls. But though this Jorogumo was still said to devour men, it was also seen as a protective spirit which helped to prevent floods and other water-related calamities. This speaks further to the dual nature of the Jorogumo. Like other so-called poison women, the monster was depicted as both alluring and terrifying, dangerous and yet attractive and powerful. Professor of Japanese literature, Christine L. Marin, delves further into the poison woman trope and points out the impacts of equating overt sexuality with criminal transgression. She writes, Never innocent, she is always already guilty of being sexual. The pervasive depiction of the deviant woman as too sexual, too salacious, too modern, casts a larger shadow over woman whether she kills or not. the same tendency can be found in the literature of Victorian Europe. In those stories, criminal women, often described as hysterical, were portrayed as seductive as well as violent. These popular portrayals led to long-lasting connections between female defiance and sexuality in popular consciousness, This gave rise to the troubling expectation that women must possess the qualities of a fictional seductress if their demands are to be taken seriously. In the inverse, it can also lead men to project overt sexuality onto women who they perceive as ideologically threatening, often without justification. Though the Jorogumo is a Japanese monster, the legends surrounding it contain universal elements, speaking to the fears and fascinations of people all over the world. Like many myths, this universality allows tales about the creature to endure even today. New depictions of the monster can be found in recent Japanese anime and video games. These adaptations build on the established stories about many yokai, twisting particulars to suit contemporary stories while staying true to the essence of what made the monsters fascinating centuries ago. Like the powerful waterfalls they inhabit, it seems the Jorogumo continue to persevere, slowly crushing the rocks and the men who stand in their way. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Terrell Wells, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson.